Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And as always, we are broadcasting this episode of Off the Couch from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And again, after we get past our current world of travel restrictions and the like, you should definitely come spend some time on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Now, our guest today is Hilary Girardi, who won the 2018 Skyrunner Extra World Series Circuit. And yet, as you'll hear Hillary say very early on in our conversation, she still doesn't necessarily think of herself as a runner, which to me at least sounds very strange and kind of suspicious coming from someone who is a Skyrunner world champion. So Brendan Leonard and I discussed this with Hillary, and it turns out her reasons for shying away a little bit from the label runner, it actually kind of makes a lot of sense once you come to understand her background and what form of moving through the mountains she actually enjoys most. Hillary was born in Vermont, but has lived in France since 2010 and currently lives in Chamonix, where she works at the Research Center for Alpine Ecosystems. So as should already be quite clear by now, Hillary is a super interesting person, and as you are about to see, she is a true delight to talk to. So let's go ahead and end this introduction and get to my conversation with Brendan Leonard and Hillary Girardi. Hillary, thanks so much for joining us on Off the Couch. If it's okay with you, we would like to talk to you about running today. I think that sounds great. I mean, truth be told, I am—I almost hardly consider myself a runner. Um, hmm. I think maybe I don't like labels. <laughs> so I, I still contend that this seems to be something sort of unique to runners, I can tell you basketball players do not ask themselves this existential question. So, and I, I don't think skiers do either. So what's going on here, Hillary? Do you have any thoughts about what it is about running that gets some of us sort of raising or asking the question, like, am I, am I one of those? What I guess I would say is, you know... On the one hand, we're all runners, right? You know, we can kind of say like from a very young age, we grow up, we, you know, start running, we all do it, we we play, that's part of play. But then there's this, like we sort of pass, many of us pass into a part of our childhood maybe where like running seems like a job or like punishment. It's like, oh, you didn't do this right, like go run a lap or whatever if you're playing another sport. And so running doesn't really seem just like fun anymore. Um, and for me, I like, I thought I hated running forever. Um, I thought running was like this necessary evil um, to like stay, sh stay in shape, I guess. Um, and I would try to run. Uh, like I'm thinking about through my college years that I would like try to go run and I'd be like, I'm going to like run and be fit. And I'd like, 
run three times in a week and then not again for like six months. Um, but part of that, I think, is because I also thought that running was like something that you did on the roads. Um, and I separated, um, you know, what you did maybe in the woods or in the mountains um, from running was like, you know, when you laced up your sneakers and you ran on the road. And I knew I didn't like that. Um, and I thought it was pretty crazy at the time that people would do that. I remember as a sophomore in college meeting this guy who like told me that he would like run up to two hours for like fun. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I like literally couldn't believe that was a thing. Um, and it's kind of funny how, how my thoughts on that have evolved over the years. Um, but yeah, I think that in my head though, I kind of like this label of runner was somebody who, who runs fast and hard on paved ground or on a track. And that never really drew me in that much. We should state that you have won multiple events with the word running in them. Uh, in in Europe, um, you're good <laughs> at sky running, but yeah, as you said, you didn't were not into it in college, and sort of. I think one of the interviews I, I listened to or found with you said you just didn't really run very much till you moved to France. But what you had done was work at it's the White Mountain Huts in in uh, New Hampshire, correct? And then there was a lot of hiking involved with that, and then um, a lot of ferrying food and gear up to the huts. Uh, and I read Doug's Doug Mayer's story for trail runner, um, in which it said that you carried a 90 pound pack board full of supplies up to a hut once and important to note that your body weight is 110 pounds. So <laughs> that's almost your entire, it's almost double your body weight. So you sort of learn to move on trails with these giant loads on your back. I mean, I, I grew up in Vermont and I definitely cut my teeth um, on the trails of the Northeast. And I think as somebody who has not spent a lot of time on trails in the West, but based on, you know, my understanding and everything I've heard, the trails of, and, and what I believe from my experience, the trails of the Northeast are really gnarly. Um, there aren't switchbacks. I didn't really know that that was a thing that existed. Um, and sometimes trails will just look like kind of washed out, um, you know, sort of riverbeds. And we did do that when I was working in the huts and, um, you know, you get these wooden pack boards and you, you strap a lot of food on them and you carry it to the hut twice a week, um, and kind of challenge yourself to carry as much as you can. Um, and I think that that helped me learn a, a lot, as you said, about how to move through technical terrain. It also taught me what not to do and like, you know, how not to do things because I got myself hurt a fair bit. Um, but definitely um, moving, trying to move quickly also because we were, you know, as college kids working in the huts, we were always late. Uh, so you'd have to be like pushing as hard as you possibly can to get the food to the hut in time for dinner. Um, so, you know, kind of pushing yourself into the red zone to move through technical terrain was definitely something that I learned there. Um, but again, not necessarily running, um, because there aren't switchbacks. It's super steep. You're just power hiking. So at this point, when you, at some point you do this, you take a 90 pound load of food up, is somebody with you and they're like, 
why don't you take this last, you know, three dozen eggs? And you're like, sure, I only got 82 pounds. Why don't I just throw that on two? Uh, I'm fine. What was this? Like, do you remember the situation? Um, not exactly, but it was like kind of, I mean, it was a challenge when we worked there to carry sort of as much as you could. And so you'd get these, um, deliveries from storehouse it was called and they'd have all the different boxes of different sizes that would have the weight written on it in pounds um and part of it was like a jigsaw puzzle to be like how can you stack boxes onto the your pack board so that it was like well balanced enough and most of the time we would just split it equally among the crew members and then every now and again you'd get somebody who'd be like oh i want to try to pack a century which would be 100 pounds and i <sighs> never did try to pack a century because as you mentioned I weigh about 110 pounds, and that seemed a little silly. Um, 90 was was as far as I got. Um, but what, what's actually funny about it is that the biggest boxes are the ones full of lettuce. Oh, yeah. And like the like really heavy things are actually <laughs> like if it's like frozen meat is really small or like a box of eggs is relatively small compared to a lettuce box. So when you're hiking on the trail – and you're packing in food, the hikers who see you are always like super impressed by the people carrying the lightest weight. <laughs> Don't be fooled. So you're not, you're not into, you, you're building like basically massive quads through your, this sort of summer job. You're really into hiking. Um, and then you move to France in 2010. Is that correct? That is right. And I guess before we totally leave the the Northeast, what I should say is that in the in the Whites um, and in the, like I mean in the Green Mountains in Vermont or in the Adirondacks in New Hampshire, there are a lot of different challenges uh, sort of associated with those different communities. And in the Huts, the big challenge. Um, is to do what's called a hut traverse. And you go from the easternmost hut to the westernmost hut, uh, and you try to do it in 24 hours. I think it's around 52 or 54 miles, and I believe around 30,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, and you stop at every hut along the way, and those kind of serve as aid stations. And so that was like a big challenge to do that when you worked in the huts. And um, so like, again, we weren't, running, but we'd be trying to go a long ways as quickly as possible. Um, and I did do that when I was working in the hut. So moving across the landscape was something that started to fascinate me when I was working there. Um, because it was a lot of like, oh, wow, like, you know, if you're, you know, if you step back from the whites and you look at the mountain range and you can say like, wow, I wonder if I could go all the way from that end of it to the other end of it just with my feet in one day. Like, wouldn't that be so cool? Um, so I started getting pretty into that idea at that point. And successfully did it the first time or? No, no. Actually, the very first time I tried, I made it about halfway. And then there was, a, we actually came upon a guy who's having a heart attack. And we stopped and participated in like a, in a rescue. Oh, 
Uh, so that was the first time and he, and he was successfully rescued. Um, but at that point we like, you know, after carrying a litter up a mountain, we were like, okay, well, we're going to stop. And then the second time, <laughs> um, the second time I did it, I did succeed, but it took me, I think like 22 hours or so. And like, I remember my legs hurting so much that I like couldn't even sleep. <laughs> wow. That's a, so do you sleep at the last hut then? Or is it like... Yeah, yeah. Well, you can hike down or you can sleep at the last hut, um, which because we I was working in the huts at the time, I knew, um, you know, I knew everyone there. And, uh, and so it was like, you know, staying and hanging out with friends. And then, well, we'll get to it maybe, maybe later, but I did go back and do it again after I became a quote unquote runner. Um, and, and got the record. I did. And that has since been broken um, by several different super strong ladies who are also uh, former hut employees and uh, and strong mountain runners. So, God, yeah, that's that actually sounds like a really awesome adventure. Honestly, I would really recommend it. It's it's one of the coolest things I've done. Um, I've every time, you know, <laughs> when I've done it, I've been like, wow. I never need to do that again. Um, but as type two fun goes, um, later on, you're like, oh, wow, that was amazing. I want to go back. <laughs> Is it sort of acceptable for non-HUT employees, like civilians, to actually do it? Or is it kind of looked down upon like, oh, come on, you know, like, I don't know. It's it's definitely not. But I think because we treat the HUTs like aid stations, as I said, uh, if you know the people who work there, they act like crew for you. Um, uh, but if you don't know the people who are working there, then, you know, you can buy food when you get there, but they're not going to be radioing to the next hut and saying, you know, <laughs> Jonathan's coming in and he really wants some mac and cheese. Yeah. I'm so hung up on the lettuce part of this story. Like in my head, while you've been talking, I'm like, when they came across the guy who had the heart attack, they're like, oh, my God, this is like he weighs like 300 boxes of lettuce. Like the lettuce is sort of the standard <laughs> or metric, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably compare him more to like, I don't know, like 10 ham bombs or something. But <laughs> <laughs> OK, you know, when you learn more about the move to France and how you've gotten into this and your success and what you're sort of into as a runner, it's like, oh, well, this kind of all makes perfect sense. And you sort of did have a, a pretty ideal setup and background from what you're describing with the HUD experience. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's definitely spot on. So I think that, you know, a lot of maybe anyone who grows up um, in the Northeast and on the trails of the Northeast could, you know, like smash it in technical European races. Um, I think that's kind of the thesis of, of Doug's article maybe, mm. but, um, but I think maybe that there's some truth to that, but I think that certainly my experience there was like very formative. And then I, you know, I also spent time in the greens and in the Adirondacks as well. Um, and then a lot of my background is also, you know, so not just hiking, but also climbing. Um, and that really, uh, has informed how I like to spend time in the mountains as well. My first ever trail race, though, was actually not in Europe. It was in the Adirondacks in 2010. I did the Great Adirondack Trail Run, which is run by this great store in Keene Valley 
um, New York called the Mountaineer. And it's this really neat 12 and a half uh, mile race. I don't know how much vert it's got, but it's pretty gnarly. And they do a really unique start where people go um, every minute. So it's really a time trial. And it makes for this kind of funny um, ambiance when you're racing, because if you see someone else, they're at least one minute up before you, ahead of you or one minute behind you. Um, so like the racing aspect is a little bit different, but that was in 2010 and that was my first ever uh, trail race. And it went super well. Uh, I, I can say that, that that race, it was a lot of fun. It went really well. Um, but I kind of was like, you know, uh, like I checked off the box. Like I had done the trail running thing. <laughs> and you didn't win. No, I did. You did win. Okay. <laughs> so you won. Okay. Of course you did. <laughs> I I did. Um, and I mean, there were definitely, there were some really strong ladies there. And I think, you know, but it was that pup, you know, that power hiking experience that helped me out. Um, and I was, but I was doing it because all my friends were doing it. And, um, and of course you didn't, because there's a time trial, you didn't know you were winning. Um, but I didn't win by much. I think it was, you know, like probably 20 seconds or something like that in the end. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so you, you then moved to France in 2010 with, was it then boyfriend? Exactly. Then boyfriend, now husband, Brad, who had done like a, a study abroad in Grenoble, France. And really, we met in college and he'd really, really wanted to go back. So he was like, well, do you want to like, do you want to come to France with me? He found a, a teaching position for a year. And I was like, oh, well, you know, why not? I've always kind of wanted to live abroad and explore a little. Um, and I planned to go for six months, you know, ski for the winter and go home. And it's now been um, ten years. So wait, Hillary, were you were you pretty into Brad at this point, or were you like, oh man, an offer for a crash pad while I go ski France for a winter? Uh, it was both. I, it was both. Now I was pretty into Brad. He he's a pretty awesome guy. Um, he is. So we, you know, we knew each other in college and we'd been, we'd spent the entire summer, uh, climbing together and hiking together. Um, and so, you know, I knew that there were a lot of adventure opportunities. <laughs> okay. I consider that like a 50, 50 answer, like kind of it on Brad, pretty into the idea of a crash pad. So, but, uh, Okay. Well, I definitely had, you know, had to had to like him enough because the first apartment we had was an 11 square meter tower. It was just a round room with no insulation. It was in this 15th century building um, and it, there was not enough space in it. So like it's round. So like the furniture can't even be flush against the wall. Um, it did have like a little loft for the bed, but it was so small that we couldn't both stretch at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> we like, we'd have to be like, oh, well you take a shower and I'll stretch. And then like, I'll take a shower and you stretch. And that, that worked because when we first moved, we were like with one suitcase and one pair of skis. Um, it would never work today, but it was really tiny. So I definitely did have to like him enough to want to spend time in that small of a space with him. 
I think people have bigger <laughs> sprinter vans now. That's true. <laughs> I yeah. think so. I think so. <laughs> I want to ask a little bit about your skiing background. What was your relationship to skiing? Yeah, so I skied growing up. Um, I, you know, being from Vermont, I know that for people from the West, like, you know, skiing in the Northeast doesn't really sound that exciting. But um, <laughs> I grew up in Vermont and we skied a lot. Um, our home mountain was Burke Mountain, which people yeah. who do follow skiing know of like Burke Mountain Academy, for yeah. example, which produces pretty awesome skiers um, like Michaela Schifrin, you know, to name one that people know of now anyway. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't a, um, I wasn't a competitive skier and like I learned to ski, but I didn't, um, do like ski racing or anything like that. I would say that my, you know, my brother and a lot of my friends were ski racers. So they all like got the technical know-how and I would just like hang on for the ride and be like bombing around the mountains with them without necessarily like, you know, having, all of the uh, the this the technical skill, um, but I could keep up and and was relatively fearless. Um, and then after that, you know, I kind of I just I liked skiing. I thought it was fun. I really discovered backcountry skiing though after you know after the move to France, um, and that's when. I was tele skiing at the time, and you know had the a backcountry setup. Um, and, and really started, really got into it when I was there. And Grenoble, France is like, so it's a city of about 400,000 people. And it um, is a university town. There are a lot of young people there. And it's totally flat. It's like literally entirely the flattest city, I think, in Europe. Um, but it's ringed. It's like at about 600 feet of elevation and it's ringed by three mountain ranges and they go up to 10,000 feet. Um, and so you've got this huge like vertical gain and it's just like, it seemed like a cool place to go and to get better at skiing and to like, you know, just explore the, explore the mountains. So I really got into it there. We really like our friend group was all based around um, the outdoors, people who were skiers and climbers. Um, and so I would say that I always I always skied. I could always get down just about anything. Um, but like my love of it developed more after college. I think that, you know, one of the things about skiing in the Alps is that there's so much terrain, there's so much stuff that's cool to do. And I don't know how much you guys know about the town of Chamonix. Brendan, I know that's that I, I met you here, so you've certainly been here. Um, it's Mecca for <laughs> ski mountaineering, right? Exactly. So um, a couple years, I guess, two years after we moved to France, uh, we were with friends and um, I had like a pretty bad winter, <laughs> I guess you could say, uh, in which actually I had, we had an incident with an avalanche. And then a few weeks later, we were in Chamonix. And I think one of the dangers of a place like Chamonix, like there are kind of a lot of dangers of a place like Chamonix. And of course, it's not all bad because I, I like it and I live here <laughs> now, but um. It, but one of the things is that 
when you can access the high mountains and you can access really dangerous terrain really easily, for example, with the Agree de Midi, um, you kind of, you don't spend that time, like the hours slogging up the mountain in which you sort of like see the environment change. Um, and so with friends, we we met in Chamonix and we took the Agree de Midi up and um, we went to go ski this couloir, which in hindsight, you could say, you know, we probably had no business being there. The conditions weren't great, but um and our friends had taken the train in from Paris. They were pretty tired, but we headed up. We boot packed up to the to this little call, and then uh, did two rappels down into a couloir, which was about fifty degrees. And I was like very much still, you know, that skier who could get down anything wasn't really scared. And I did two turns, and my binding just popped, and I ragdolled the entire couloir. Um, so I did about 450 vertical meters of ragdolling oh, and ended up at the bottom wedged sort of in a crevasse between, uh, ice and rock. And it was a total miracle, I would say, because aside from, you know, my clothes being ripped to shreds and, um, holes in my helmet, an SLR camera in my backpack, totally like blown up to pieces. I had three stitches and a bunch of bruises and that was it. Wow. Um, and so after that experience, it was kind of like had this really crappy winter <laughs> with like these two accidents. And I was like, wow, like maybe I should do something like less dangerous than like wrapping into steep cool wars. Like maybe I should reevaluate my relationship to the mountains. Um, and that's when I like, I needed kind of to set another goal. I needed to like reset my objectives and, uh, and Brad, my husband was like, Oh, well, remember like you did trail running once, um, literally <laughs> once. Um, why don't you try that? And so we signed up for, uh, a relay that he was going to do 30 K and I'd do 50 K. I went, you know, straight for it. Um, and so that was like the first summer that I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, try out this trail running thing. Um, and I should say, so we signed up for this race, which was in the Chartreuse Mountains, the same ones where they make the, the liquor Chartreuse, if you guys are familiar with it, um, which is right next to Grenoble. And uh, probably like three weeks, maybe before that race, a friend of mine was like, oh, hey, I'm going to do a race tomorrow. Also in the Chartreuse, like, you know, do you want to come? And one of the really cool things about France um, and the Alps more generally is that there are tons of trail races. And like when I say tons, I mean like on any given weekend during the trail running season. And of course, we're obviously now in a weird time where everything is canceled. But um, but usually during the trail running season, kind of like April, May through October, on any given weekend, you could find a half dozen races within a couple hour drive. And so there's just tons of events and a lot of them you can just sign, you can just go and sign up the morning of. So I went to this race um, with a friend of mine, signed up the morning of, and it also went very well. And I won that race and won a 12 pound leg of prosciutto. <laughs> and But not lettuce. 
No, no lettuce. Okay. This was more of a ham bomb. <laughs> this giant leg of prosciutto. And I was like, trail running is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is so cool. And when I brought it home, Brad was obviously like, I support this activity. You should continue. Did any of the other people who podiumed get um, meat products or was it like just the <laughs> well, winners? So the first place, man and woman, each got a leg of prosciutto. The oh. second place, if I can remember correctly, actually each got a salami. <laughs> um, and third place might have gotten like a cheese basket or something. And I do think that they have, at this point in, in my life, I don't eat much meat Um but I'm sure I'd still be pretty psyched about prosciutto. Um, but um, but I think, you know, some races have moved away from the straight meat, <laughs> meat <laughs> prizes, but not all of them. Because if you race in Italy, for example, like you can still go home definitely with with um, like a leg of ham. Huh. How, do you remember how long it took you and Brad to eat the 12 pounds of ham, of prosciutto? <laughs> Uh, I don't, but probably not as long as you would think. I should say, so like, well, whereas I'm 5'1 and weigh 110 pounds, Brad is almost 6'4 and weighs, like, I don't even know how much he weighs, maybe 180 pounds. So um, he definitely holds his own against a leg of ham. (laughs) Perfect. But it definitely, it was a joke, a running joke for quite a while that I was bringing home the bacon. But Oh, yeah. yeah that's yeah. that's so easy. Yeah. It's, it just, it's teed up for you. You just have to hit it. That's great. I really want to hear more about your work at the Research Center for Alpine Ecosystems. Did I get this correct? You you did. So, well, it's an acronym in French. It's called CREAM en blanc. Uh, and the acronym doesn't work when we say the name of the, the research center in English. Uh, it only works in French. But um, that's actually, so we lived in Grenoble, France for six years. And then we moved up here to Chamonix. Um, one, because um, we both ended up... Um, getting jobs working for CREA. And um, so Brad, basically, you know, we at once we moved to France, we haven't really like approached it with a long-term vision. It's been like, you know, kind of, I guess I, I try to think of like one of the blessings of having to renew your visa every year is that you are like forced to, you know, assess whether or not you still want to be living where you're living. It's not just by default. So we've been for the last 10 years on this one-year visa renewal. Um, But that means that we do, you know, we're very intentional about where we want to be living. Um, But so uh, sort of in the project, living with Grenoble, Brad ended up getting a master's and then a PhD there. I taught at um, the American School of Grenoble for, for five years and then went back to school and got a master's. And then we moved to Chamonix, both of us, to work for um, Crea Mont Blanc. And the other reason we moved to Chamonix is because Brad was also in the French Mountain Guide program. So he went through the, the essentially um, 
four-year process of becoming an international certified mountain guide here in France. So that's kind of both Crayon Montblanc and and the guiding work led us to move here. Um, And so our organization is a small nonprofit research center um, that focuses on studying the impacts of climate change on mountain biodiversity. So we're not really looking at so much at glaciers, for example, or permafrost melt, even those are those those are really, really important topics that are um, you know, really impacting the Mont Blanc range and, and the rest of the Alps and the rest of the world, of course. But we're looking sort of more as ecosystems as a whole and plants and animals within that. And then So we do research and then we also work with the public through citizen science programs and educational programs and outreach programs um, to sort of get the word out. Um, What I should like, I guess what I would say about our organization is that it might be considered kind of an activist organization in the U.S., uh, given that in the U.S., some places that you go, people think that just talking about climate change is activism. Um, In France, it's not considered an activist organization. It's much more like scientific, just saying like, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to tell you how to act. We're just going to tell you what is happening. So you believe in science is what you're saying, (laughs) which is a highly political opinion, I believe. (laughs) I do. I do believe in science. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Hmm. What about what about math though? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I got. I don't know if I've got you know a full belief in math. I feel like we need to hear both sides of the research about math before we're going <laughs> to commit to it. I don't know. I made a I made a great graph the other day. Um, in some part, inspired by you, Brendan. So, um, so you know, math at least provides us with some good ways to represent things, like with x and y axis. Oh, yeah. No, I love, yeah. I like that Brendan's like, oh, yeah, no, I've been a big math proponent for a long time now. Just like <laughs> making sure we're we're clear of that. That's great. I don't, I I don't know that anything. I, yeah, I don't, I like science too. I believe, uh, I believe in you science. You believe in science and math. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I can choose here. I'm like, science makes me toast. Like, that's, that's amazing. You know? <laughs> Hillary, um, what... Does the stuff you're working on now, does this relate to whatever it was that you studied in college? The short answer is no, Um, but the longer answer is so. I studied in undergraduate, I studied sociology and anthropology. So like, that's just like life. I obviously that's related to everything we do, but, um, but for my graduate degree, I did, um, a degree in international cooperation and multilingual communication. So it doesn't, um, specifically have to do with, um, um, with science. However, um, because one, the Mont Blanc range, uh, as you probably know from this little race, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it. It's called the UTMB. Um, Mm. Mm -hmm. it goes, it goes through three countries. Um, and so the Mont Blanc range is in three countries. And so any research on a range like the Alps, or even at a smaller scale, the scale, the Mont Blanc massive, requires international cooperation. Um, 
and to some extent, multilingual communication. <laughs> so that's a direct, uh, a direct link. Um, an example would be that we just completed a project called Adapt Mont Blanc, which was a um, funded by the European Union. And we were asked by the decision makers in Italy, France, and Switzerland to basically make a projection of um, what the Espace Mont Blanc, which is like a like a bigger sort of geographic entity that includes the Mont Blanc range and um, some of the territory around it, um, but sort of project out different climate scenarios of what this this territory is going to look like in 2050 and then even on to like 2080. And what's neat about that is that these decision makers, elected officials essentially said, we really need to know what's going to happen in order to make plans, um, you know, urban planning, economic planning um, that corresponds with what the future is going to be like here. So for example, Chamonix, obviously, as we said, it's a mecca of skiing and if there's not going to be snow or there's going to be like, you know, the case with uh, with where we are is that since the 1970s, we've lost about one month of snow cover duration. Um, and it's projected that by 2050, we'll lose about another month. And so to be putting all of your eggs in the skiing basket um, in terms of long-term planning isn't great. Um so that's an example of a way in which that international cooperation uh, sort of played into uh, the kind of work that we do. So we're doing science, but there's, you know, in, an international flair to it, I guess. Yeah. Wow. So do you speak Italian, too? I do not. I do not. I'm uh, fluent in French, French and English and speak actually a bit of um, a bit of Spanish, but on the Italian side of Mont Blanc in the Val d'Aost, they actually speak French. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Sort of like the Swiss side of Switzerland, or the, the French-speaking part <laughs> the French. of Switzerland, not the Swiss. <laughs> side. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes, in the Swiss side of Switzerland, they speak they Swiss. Speak. Yes, they do. <laughs> I think I read this in some article, but do you, you and Brad both work? It's sort of a part-time job with Korea, or is or is it full-time? Yeah, no, it, it is a part-time job. Um, I We've both actually decided sort of because of our mountain pursuits, um, him guiding and me running, um, we both work three days a week um, and we're lucky actually. So the entire organization, which we're only seven people working there, but almost everyone is part-time because like the founder, she um, is also a ski instructor and the... Um, like the the co-director is a is a hiking guide and so like we all sort of have these additional mountain activities and so um yeah we're able to sort of uh have our our schedule um work around or work in in collaboration our two schedules kind of going together and um and one of the nice things about that is that everyone does understand that sometimes, like, you just have to take a powder day. <laughs> so, you're, yeah. So, gosh, you're able to have a really nice running schedule with four days off a week or quote unquote off. Yeah. I mean, usually, so I'll oftentimes be working, like, working four days a week. Um, and then I can kind of, like, stock up time a little bit for when, when it's racing season. Um uh -huh. 
but but no, it does allow me to have you know enough flexibility, uh, which is really nice. I I really appreciate it. But I also don't really see myself completely leaving work because I really I I think that we're doing interesting work, and I think that um, sort of having that part of my brain turned on is pretty important to me. Man, that sounds just like such an ideal setup. I mean, for exactly the reasons you just said, to be able to get to have time to go spend in the mountains and train and work on that craft of mountain running, but then to have this whole other area that is important and sort of related, that sounds really kind of ideal to me. Yeah, I mean, it is it is awesome. I guess, you know, the the hardest things about the situation that we've kind of set up for ourselves is one, we will absolutely never be rich. Um, working for a French nonprofit is not a way to make a lot of money. Um, and uh, and we're we're far away from our families as well. Both of us are from Vermont, and that's definitely kind of hard um, for us to be away from away from our parents. And we have brothers in the western part of the U.S. Um, but in terms of like work life balance and getting to be like living the life we want to be living right now, um, we're definitely pretty stoked about it. <laughs> and check out this prosciutto. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I don't even know if you can, you know, get cured meat like that. But um, <laughs> this is a big jag away from I. I did listen to your guys's interview with um, with the Jurix and it's <laughs> going very much in the other direction. But <laughs> this is very straight and narrow compared to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to get, I, I do like the idea though that like. You come home from work one day and Brad's like, uh, hey, honey, um, we're getting low on food. Can you go run a race? I I will say that I don't usually, you know, go for the prizes. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, particularly for local races, there's like a pretty good bet that if you podium, you will bring home food. Okay. Yeah. Sounds ideal. <laughs> You just get belt buckles in the U.S. and then you don't really. <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan. I mean, I come from a family that like when we give gifts, it's usually consumables. Um, like we try not to accumulate that much stuff. It's like, well, you know, I like I know that my dad likes I don't know hot sauce, so I like give him yeah. that um, rather than something that he can use. <laughs> hot sauce is always. Yeah, hot sauce is always a terrific gift. Every there's no there is no occasion where hot sauce is the wrong thing to give. Correct. Um, not not to keep bringing us back to running, but it's this is I in one of the articles I was reading about you. You it sounds like you sort of you were getting into running, but you were thinking more longer distance. But then you had uh, a bike accident where you broke some ribs, and that and so. Not to, no pun intended, you sort of accidentally found your way into sky running. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. Um, so I think one of the things about, you know, sort of what I was also thinking about all of these like preconceived notions that I had uh, about running that have been, you know, like smashed again and again. Um, but I definitely kind of went into it. The first race that I, you know, signed up for with any time, like advanced time was a 50K. Like I thought that like trail running was ultra trail running. And I feel like a lot of times 
And you guys could definitely correct me on this because I have not raced much at all in the U.S., but I feel like in the U.S. there's a big emphasis on ultras. And when people talk about trail running, they usually think you're talking about ultras. Um, And so, like, I kind of had my, you know, my sight set in that direction as well. Um, I started, you know, with like these 50Ks. um, Relatively early on, I do remember, um, again, in this Chartreuse Mountain range, there was an 85K. And I remember somebody asking me if I thought I would do the 85K. And I was like, oh, no way. Like that would, running would like take over my life if I was going to run that far. (laughs) And um, like, Literally two years later, I had signed up for 120K um, and and was going for it. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I went, you know, relatively quickly up to longer distance. I ran that 120K in the Pyrenees, which was really awesome. So wild, I would say like the opposite of a UTMB type race, because there's like, I went from 9 p.m. until 4 a.m. without seeing another person. Um, but um my my thought was that I did want to keep doing long races. I was planning to do, um, I guess, I think it was 2015, uh, 140K. And I, and I did exactly that. I uh, just was biking to go run and um, ended up kind of like hitting handlebars with my friend who I was going with. And just like my bike tipped over and I landed on a big rock and broke three oh. ribs and realized... I guess relatively late that I had broken ribs because I still went running and it was really painful. Um, But then relatively quickly that I was not going to be able to do the volume that I would need for such a long race. Um, But at the time, like I was still like taking it not seriously, but not like professional in any way. I had no coach. It was just like, I had read on a blog somewhere that you should spend a certain amount of time on your feet, um, every, every week. So like, that's how I based all of my training. Um, and a friend of mine, um, who did know much more than me about training said, you know, well, I'll like, he saw that I was super disappointed and said, well, let me like help you kind of reassess your goals, let's set some new goals and I'll help you train to do some shorter distance racing. And he got me to sign up for a race called the Sky Rune in Basque country, but on the French side. Um, And I went to that race that fall and it was like a 25K probably with, I'd say probably around 6,000 or 7,000 feet of climb. Um, And it had this awesome party after it. Um, It was like the race happened. It like started pretty late and it finished relatively late. So everyone was like still at the race area by the evening. And they just had like this really awesome party. And I was like, this is so much fun. Like the, you know, the, the community, the ambiance, it's really great. So I then signed up for um was a sky race called limone extreme which happens um on lake garda in italy um and i went to that with my friend katie um who was the aforementioned other hut girl who's a really strong runner um if you guys haven't talked to katie shide yet she's um pretty awesome from maine 
uh, spent a lot of time running in the U.S. in like around Salt Lake and is now based in France, was sixth, I think, at the UTMB this year. Um, Very, very strong runner. Um, But she and I went to Limone kind of just like not even knowing what we were getting ourselves into. Uh, It ended up that it was like the last race of the Skyrunner World Series, but like we just didn't even know that. We were just like, oh, I was like, I went to a sky race and it was so fun. We should do one. And so we just like were able to sign up and go. And it was like, it was high level. There were top runners from all around the world at it. Um, similar format. It was like 28K, probably with like seven or 8,000 um, feet of vertical climbing, super rocky and gnarly, um, starts and finishes at the lake. Um, and because it was the end of the season, there was also like this really great party. <laughs> and I was like, man, I am going to sign up for the Skyrunner World Series next year. Like Skyrunning is awesome. The races are cool. And like everyone is having a good time. I don't want to interrupt, but did you win either of these two races you just talked about? Or were you I like, didn't know. I did not. Okay. Um, I, did, you, did you have an inkling you were like good though? Were you kind of going, wow, I could actually for real compete in this? Um, I will. What I would say is so at the, so the, the sky rune, the first one was in the French sky running series and I placed third at that. And that was like pretty awesome. I didn't see it coming at, um, at the at Limone, I was seventh, I think, and or maybe eighth. I can't remember, but but I remember thinking like I my goal. So my goal for the following year was I want to place. Like I want to be ranked in the Skyrunner hmm. World Series. Like I want to do enough races so that I can like get a ranking. And like for me, that was like could I get in the top 20 or something like that would be so cool. That was like the, the, the way that I was thinking about it. And then, so you, so you end up doing a bunch of these races and well, how did, how did that work out that goal setting and then the follow? Yeah. So one of the things, so I don't really know to what extent in the U S there are like circuits like this. Um, but first for the Skyrunner world series, you can basically as any person who wants to do the series, basically you can say like, I would really like to do the series. Um, and they'll basically allow you to sign up for races. Um, and if you commit to doing the series, what's really neat about it is that there are some of these races um, and they change some from year to year, but that might be hard to get into. And it essentially, if you're doing the series, you get a guaranteed slot in it. So an example for that would be like um, Zagama in Spain was on the series that year. And um, and it was like, if you're doing the series, you can like you get a guaranteed spot, which is not the case otherwise. Um, and so I signed up to do, um, I guess it was 2017. I signed up to do the series and I signed up to different races around Europe um, and had a, a friend uh, this French girl named Celia, uh, who is Celia Chiron, who is a really strong runner. Um, and she had been like, I'm going to do this one. And I've done this one. And she kind of helped me put my plan together of which ones I wanted to do. Um, and kind of just, you know, set that season from, from April through October, uh, and, and did the races. And I didn't have outstanding, like performance, really outstanding performances, uh, 
for the most part at them. Um, actually, I did at the Dolomite Sky Race. I did play second, which was like totally mind blowing. But it was a very, very technical descent, which like plays to my strengths for sure. Um, and and I ended up finishing fourth for the whole series that year. And so that like totally blew my mind that that was like, you know, sort of within within reach to be able to do. But I think that it's too bad because these are international races, but it's really hard because most of them do still happen in Europe. And so necessarily you don't see as many North Americans coming to them. Um, and I think that's something that's pretty unfortunate. Yeah. But all the, all the big sports in America are like the world championship of sports that no one else plays. So I suppose that tr that's true. I hadn't thought about like the baseball World Series or anything like that. But um. <laughs> that, that does bring up a question, though, for me. Um, do you find that um, so you're an American living in, in Europe and doing this thing that um, is really established in Europe? Do you find that uh, Americans are unaware of or more or less aware of what sky running actually is? Uh, when you talk about it, is it sort of like, like when your parents, when you're saying, oh, I want all these things and like, what the hell is that? Or is it, is it sort of, do you have to explain it to people, I guess? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, people don't really know what sky running is, um, I think it, what's cool about sky running is when you delve into the history of it, there is like this, you know, relatively sort of since the 1980s, a relatively long history um, of sky running um, challenges and events. Uh, but they're really, they were really based all in the Alps. Uh, and so that history, uh, you know, from like Bruno Bruno and whoever, you know, running up Mont Blanc or Monte Rosa or, um, or the Matterhorn, like those are it's very Europe focused. And definitely when I go to the US, I would say, one, like the concept isn't even there. And two, I, th I feel like there is this misunderstanding some about um, the challenge of running say a 25k race. Um, because as I as I said, my feeling that I get when I'm home in the US is that people are very ultra focused and that they like believe that because a race is longer, it is harder. And to me that's a mistake. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting in trail running versus say track and field, right? Nobody is going to say that, you know, the 800 meter is harder, winning the 800 meter is harder than winning the 100 meter because it's longer. Like we accept that the 100 meter and the 400 meter and the 800 meter and the, you know, you know, 10,000 meter, they're just, they're different events. Um, and I think that there's a lack of understanding in that about trail running. Um, people want to see like, who is the best trail runner in the world without understanding that running a 20 K or even a 10 K in the mountains really well is, you know, extraordinarily difficult. And it's not just easy because it's shorter, um, Having, you know, I haven't done 100 mile races. The furthest I've done is 75 miles, but like I don't necessarily feel like that was harder than running a really good 35K or a really good 20K. It's just something different. Totally. Hillary, we had, I think it was a conversation we were having 
with uh, Ian Sharman. Mm-hmm. And he was really banging on this drum. And I think it's, I'm glad to hear you also raising this point. I think it's, I, I think you're right about kind of the the generalizations or stereotypes that like longer is sort of harder or longer is better. And um, I appreciate both you and Ian sort of coming back to reinforce that like, let's respect, let's respect the kind of nuances and the... Um, the particular um, skill sets required to pull off, you know, to be successful at different distances. This doesn't feel like a mistake we make, uh, say, when it comes to, say, like swimming. Like, I I don't think people are like, oh, well, you know, the breaststroke, you know, is the the only or the ideal (laughs) form of this. Or like, I I feel like there is somehow, again, we're talking in generalizations here, but I feel like we've even got a better handle on the nuances of some of the, these different skill sets and, and different types of events in the world of swimming than maybe we do when it comes to quote unquote running. Yeah, I think that you're spot on about that. But I think that it probably comes from the fact that, you know, trail running as an organized sport um, is relatively young. And I have every hope that, you know, people are going to realize it eventually um, that, you know, uh, with time, people will come to say, like, these are really different disciplines um, and and that it's every bit as valuable. And I think that's something that's important for people who are just getting into the sport to realize as well is that, like, you want to be a trail runner. You don't have to set your sights on a 50 miler, like set your sights on a, you know, uh, on a 10K, set your sights on, uh, you know, 5K trail race and say, I'm going to do it well. And that's, and that's a, a very different, you know, it's a very different thing. And people don't have to push themselves or find the time to be able to train for an ultra. It's a lot of time. And I think, you know, if people think that they have to be shooting for those long distances, um, I think that that can kind of make barriers to getting into the sport. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. Especially people with lives outside of running for four to six hours at a time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So do you have like a, how do you explain skyrunning to people who have not heard of it? Is there like a boilerplate thing that you say like, oh, well, it's this? Um, Not exactly, but I guess I would say like, you know, how, like, how do you know if a sky race is a sky race? And like, if you don't have to use your hands at some point, then it's probably not a sky race. Um, So like, if I would explain it, I would say, you know, it's like, it's like trail running, but with a lot of like scrambling in it. Um, so you have to kind of like haul yourself up and over rocks and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that that notion of using your hands is usually one that I come back to. There's a, there's a quote I pulled off of somebody's story about you where you said, I'm not that good of a runner and tend to avoid the races that are really fast and runnable, both because I don't think they're as fun and because I'm not that good at them. So you're, sort of specialty is just really steep technical stuff. Was that, was that close to accurate? Oh, that's completely accurate. I was not misquoted there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which comes back to like, we're coming full circle to what we said right at the beginning, right? That I said, I don't know if I like really am a runner because, um, you know, I would say the, uh, 
a large part of what I do is actually like is power hiking and that sort of thing. And when it actually comes to like really running, I'm, I'm not that fast, you know, like my splits aren't that good. I probably my form is probably terrible. And I and I do run and I train running and I have found um the importance of doing speed work, for example, um, to be able to gain time on more runnable sections of the races that I do. Um, but I, um, yeah, when people will oftentimes ask me if I'm interested in doing the UTMB or even the Mont Blanc marathon, you know, they're based right here in Chamonix. And, I think they're beautiful trails to hike on, but they don't really interest me because they're like, you know, like Jeep tracks half the way. Um, And I don't find that, you know, I feel like one of the things that I love about running um, a particularly technical terrain is that it makes me concentrate really hard on what I'm doing. Um, And, you know, I, I think there is there is this quote in the book what i talk about when i talk about running um which is a haruki murakami memoir if you guys have read it Wonderful. and which he yes. says you know right wh- what do you think about when you're running and he says you know like nothing and that's kind of like what's beautiful about it and like thoughts pass through my brain but what I love is being so concentrated, you know, technical terrain demands so much attention that you have no choice but to be fully present. Um, and for me, I find that if I'm not on technical terrain, um, that I, I oftentimes am a little bit less present. And that's an entirely personal thing. Um, but I kind of, my, my brain can wander in a way that has its own value, for sure. Um, but I, but I'm not as fully there as, um, in the experience as when I'm on technical terrain. Um, so there's definitely that aspect, almost a meditative aspect to it. And then there's also, um, the part that I just think it's so much fun. And that's like my, you know, maybe mountain climbery background as well. But that like, I just think scrambling is so much fun. <laughs> Hillary, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, you are a mountain scrambler or like a mountain <laughs> speed scrambler. It's just that that's not a thing, right? Like we don't, we don't have that term, right? So we just call you a runner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's really so interesting. It's funny because, um, so my, my primary sponsor is black diamond and they, one of their sort of like lines, they have live, climb, repeat, live, ski, repeat, and live, run, repeat. And I've been pushing hard to make it live, scramble, repeat, Um, and which really embodies what a lot of us do Uh, anyway. But but I I totally agree with you. I do think, I mean, I think it's really impressive when you can get runners and athletes who can really cross over. You take somebody, for example, um, like Brittany Peterson, uh, who's second at Western States this year. She did the, the Skyrunner World Series um, in, in 2018 with me. And she did do uh, a couple races last year, but she's extraordinarily competent on technical terrain. And she is also fast as hell. And I think it's really cool to see people who are able to do both. I don't really consider myself one of them, but, um, but I, but it's really neat to see. Um, I also think this is something, this is just, uh, something I've thought about a lot, um, which is the fact that I think 
with the sport being young and and technical running being relatively young, at least in the U.S., um, I think that there are a lot of like, you know, hidden stars out there that like haven't even tried it yet. And I feel like I'm really lucky to be doing the sport at a time where there aren't that many people yet. Cause like, it seems like I'm really good, but then like once everybody starts doing it, I'll be retired and everyone will be way faster. <laughs> um, but like, I, I think that there are a lot of people with a lot of potential, um, and that they just haven't discovered it yet. Um, and some of them are, fast, you know, fast, flat runners. Uh, and they just have to, you know, learn how, how fun the scrambling is. I wonder if LeBron James feels the same way about basketball. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, Brendan. You don't think so? You don't think he's like, yeah, there's, there's somebody coming up who's going to be better than me. The sport of basketball is not actually all that old, right? I mean, like late 19th century, And we do see these more kind of a little bit more subtle changes like the three-pointer, right? That was not as much of a thing 10 to 15 years ago. Now everybody's just jacking up threes on a basketball court. But I think with respect to quote-unquote running, right, this huge catch-all, this single word that is actually a huge catch-all term for all of this really interesting stuff you know, specific stuff that's happening under that rubric. And so I'm just thinking, you know, it seems like a lot of conversation recently has been about, oh, look, what happens when professional marathon runners start getting into trail running? And there's, I feel like I've, that's been sort of a wave or a trend, right? Conversational trend. But like, okay, cool. But what you're talking about with technical running or, you know, scrambling, cool, bring on the professional marathon runners. They're going to suck at this. Yeah, well, so what's interesting is there is a race, a new race in the in the Skyrunner World Series that I was not at last year, but I but I watched sort of the live of it. And there were um, some, you know, more marathon or even, you know, mountain running profile folks who ran it. And on the uphill, they killed it. On the downhill, with the exception of the guy who won, uh, because he was amazing. Um, but on the downhill, a lot of them just got, you know, blown by, by the experienced technical runners. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. But it also, to me, showed, you know, the potential that there is. And I think that, um, to that end, a lot of times, you know, just as I know that if I became dedicated at it, I might be able to get faster on the flat, people can get a lot stronger on technical terrain as well. I mean, I worked hard, you know, I do have, you know, I came with baggage and a background, but I also worked hard literally doing like downhill reps on technical terrain. Um, and I thought that I, I also thought that I hated downhill because I, I've, you know, relatively weak ankles, but I pushed myself, you know, like you're doing, um, you know, an uphill rep and then turn around and get back down and try to get back down in half the time. Um, because in a race, it's not like, you know, oftentimes when you're doing hill reps, you do fast on the uphill and slow on the downhill, but in a race, like, it's not like it's a break on the downhill. Um, 
And pushing yourself to then go fast on the downhill can sort of, you can train yourself to get better at it. And, you know, by one doing it, doing, you know, up and down on the same stretch of trail allows you to learn, uh, you know, where the rocks are, where am I putting my feet? So you get more comfortable and more confident on that stretch of trail. You're doing it when you're tired. So like, whereas the first couple reps, you might be like super, you know, tensed up, you kind of loosen up, you kind of like let gravity take you because you're tired. And it helps you sort of gain confidence in that way, uh, and move more efficiently. And the other thing is that I have tested forcing myself to smile, like hmm. on the downhill, being like, <sighs> I like this <laughs> and like <laughs> I am doing this because it is fun and that actually literally has made me gain time on the downhill. <laughs> a friend of yours from college, Hillary wrote a profile uh of you for Middlebury magazine and there's a really great section in here about uh your older brother Julian who officiated your wedding and said during the ceremony that you and Brad are sort of opposites in the fact that Brad wants everyone to have a good time and Hillary wants to win. And <laughs> the writer goes on to say that it, uh, it might be more accurate to say that Hillary also wants everyone to have a good time and she wants to win. <laughs> I, I mean, I, as, as I said, Sierra is a perceptive person and excellent writer. And I think that that is true. Um, I mean, I think that I do, I really do want everyone to have a good time. And like for me, the minute that, you know, well, not the minute because perseverance is really important, but um, like when trail running stops being fun for me, I'm going to stop doing it. Like I'm doing it because I love it and because I enjoy it. And, you know, I think that's part of also, you know, why the work-life balance and everything is important for me. Um, but so that like I know that I have something else planned if I if I decide to stop running but um but people oftentimes point out that I'm smiling when I'm like when I'm running and when I'm racing and part of that is probably because I you know have read about the science of smiling and how it makes things easier and I really and truly believe that but I also believe that it's like connected to your brain that like you know sometimes people are like grinding up a hill and they're like oh my god like this is so hard oh this is awful and I'm like who forced you to do this like you did this because you want to like we're all here because we want to be here so like you know you should like it and enjoy it and like and I, and I remind myself that like my body is pretty awesome. Like I, you know, I smile because I'm like, holy crap, this is like pretty remarkable. And I like to remind other people to have a good time too. And so like when I'm racing, I'm, you know, even if I'm getting past, I'm saying, you know, like, Eddie, Eddie, go, you know, go get him because like we're, we're here to have fun and we want to have a good time. Um, of course, I am a competitive person and I want to push myself and I do want to win. Um, I think anyone who's trail racing at a or doing any kind of racing at a high level who's like, oh, yeah, I just like do it for the love of the sport and I don't care about competition is like you wouldn't go to those races if if you didn't care about competition. Like, um, but but I do like I think I think it's important that, you know, you do it because you love it and you have fun doing it. And once it's not fun anymore, like go look for something else that's fun. Mm -hmm. So maybe even more accurately, Hillary wants to win, but also wants everyone to have a good time, including herself. Yes. Maybe. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can write the next profile, Brandon. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm I'm that's like I'm ripping off. That's I'm, I'm just adding a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, she only added a little bit for my brother's um, speech, so you know. Oh, but the the synthesis is the key there. I think that's a that's a good piece of writing. I just, I just loved this conversation, to be honest. So, Hillary, I want to have you back on at some point because I get the sense that we sort of have only scratched the surface here. But I, I think this is just really kind of inspiring and fun. And it's so interesting to get to hear more about your approach to running, what you're doing with the work at CREA and the concerns there. And a big reason for starting Off the Couch was to try to break down any kind of obstacles or barriers that might tend to keep people away from running or getting into this. And so just one of my big takeaways from this conversation is I really like this idea of, hey, just go figure out what kind of style of running you're into and what kind of distance and if you are somebody who just loves 5Ks, great. Go do that, you know, enjoy yourself, you know, find joy in that process. And don't get pulled to this idea that you've got to run longer or go do a different type. And I, I think that that in and of itself is probably a valuable thing for people just getting started or even, you know, wherever we are, you know, ind individually at a given point in time on a, on a kind of spectrum with respect to a, you know, evolving relationship with running, I think that's a pretty useful thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I love that that's, you know, one of the big messages that you're taking away from it, and I hope that other people will too, um, is, you know, really keeping in mind that we shouldn't attach um, you know, a value judgment on the kind of, of running or the distance of running people are doing. Um, I think that we need to remember that it is like a, a, a single word that encompasses so many different varied activities. Um, and there isn't one that is, you know, necessarily more pure or more valuable, um, or more heroic than another. Um, it's more about finding what works for you and deciding, you know, how you do or do not want to, you know, like excel at that, you know, or, or push yourself or experience that sort of niche within the sport that you enjoy. Amen. Well, Hillary, this has really just been a pleasure. And um, thanks so much for taking the time. And it's great to connect with you. And uh, I actually was just supposed to be getting back from France, like, yesterday or something and that trip got Aww. postponed but that i think i think that trip is going to be on you know probably be rescheduled for about a year out and so uh when uh when i'm over there i may come uh come come say hi to you and brad find you guys in chamonix yeah if you need a guide i know one <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well perfect listen thanks so much um this has been really fun and uh again i look forward to, to doing this again down the line at some point Thanks, Hillary. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Take care. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Hillary and Brendan for the great conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte and Gunnison, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, 
Please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.